My name is Rob Achenkloss, and this is the Holocene Podcast, where we seek knowledge from those creative, adventurous, and bright among us. These individuals are storytellers, entrepreneurs, athletes, designers, and everything else in between. It is my job as the host to take what they have each learned in their own lives and codify their knowledge so that you can use their lessons in your own life. In this episode, I am joined by Benjamin Smith. Benjamin is the founder of Disco, a skincare, I even want to call it just a health and wellness brand that is disrupting the space, especially involving men's skincare. And him and I have this wide-ranging conversation about everything from the COVID lockdown to the future of men's health to how to start and form countries, countries, companies. This is what happens in your court late at night uh, with your best friends and people that you trust and love. Now, without further ado, please enjoy this conversation between myself and Benjamin Smith. Life is either an incredible adventure or it's nothing at all. Hey, Ben. Thanks for uh, coming on my show. Appreciate it, Rob. Thanks for having me on. So I usually start all podcasts with the same question, which is, um, what is the first thing that you think about when you wake up in the morning? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Right now... It's usually centered around my business, Disco. And <laughs> admittedly, the first thing I typically check, which isn't necessarily the most healthy thing, is, is how many sales we did while I was sleeping. Um, so at least for now, that's, that's sort of what I'm focused on when I wake up. Um, but I usually take a few minutes after I actually open my eyes before doing that. So at least there's sort of like a transition period before I start looking at the Shopify app on my phone. Yeah, and I, I think that you know you are uh, you know, in in e-commerce now, and so you understand that like your sales are very closely linked to your success or your future success as a company. So I understand that as a <laughs> thing you want to check. But yeah, no, certainly it's it's definitely been an interesting transition um, in in terms of being a founder at a very early stage e-commerce brand. Um, you know, you live and die by your metrics, so. Yeah, while it's understandable that I do that, I'm working to be a little bit better with my sort of quote unquote phone hygiene and um, yeah, not look at other sort of social media channels in addition to the sales metrics um, when I wake up. And I'm having some good success with that. How about yourself? Yeah, I've actually, so that's been my priority through COVID is just, you know, fix my, I think phone hygiene is a great, great way to phrase it. Uh, for me, I used to, you know, wake up and the first thing I'd want to check is like a mixture of Instagram messages, dating apps, you know, like, you, you know how it goes, right? So you just, you just, you kind of, you know, you're addicted to these different notifications. And then, you know, for about a year and a half now, I've had my phone in this mode where, uh, my phone only lights up or vibrates or buzzes for people calling me, uh, that I know or calendar invites um and so basically like if i want anything else i have to go to my notification center so i have to go into my phone to see anything so in terms of waking up um the hardest thing that has been transitioning because it's just like you're i think everyone all of us are just so addicted to our phones is waking up and focus on meditating before even looking at your phone so like wake up and be like okay i see what time it is i have time to do this 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 um because i don't wake up with that with alarm anymore and uh and and just try to meditate for i've been doing it an hour which is something i worked up to for a very long time but uh after that you know i'm just i then i then i i find that i care less about what's on my phone immediately when i wake up i kind of have that gut feeling to be like oh what's happening 
Um, but if I can kind of push past that first five or so minutes, I, I don't really care. And then I find out that I end up wasting a lot less time throughout the rest of the day on the phone. Yeah, I, I agree. I also um, meditate fairly regularly and have a pretty strict regimen in the morning. The one guilty pleasure that I uh, indulge in is, is a sort of Shopify sales metrics. But apart from that, I, I'm pretty dialed in on the morning routine front. Most people would think it's it's pretty crazy um, in terms of the time I take before I really start working, quote unquote. But frankly, like I found I found personally that having a, a pretty regimented morning routine, whatever that may look like based on the individual, is, is really important to ground your day. Um, if you can afford to take that time, obviously, it's kind of a luxury for sure. Um, but it definitely results in like a slower pace start to the day, which, you know, throughout the course of the day, in my opinion, you know, allows you to respond to problems and things of that nature in a more level-headed fashion. So um, an hour is a long time. I, I imagine that took some time to work up to. Uh, are you doing any sort of like breath work or anything throughout that? You know, I, I originally started with an app. Um, I used Headspace and I switched to Sam Harris's app. And then there was a podcast with Naval Ravikant and Joe Rogan, and he was talking about meditation. He's like, the point is, you know, you just need to close your eyes and clear your brain. Like, don't think about breathing. Don't think about mantra. Just like the, the point of meditation is to truly empty your mind. Right. So I, after that point, I said, you know what, I'm going to try to do this. And I'd say like of the hour, depending on the day and what's going on, like I may get close to 50 minutes of meditation in there. Sometimes I get 10, you know, so it really depends on, you know, what's passing through. But I, I, I view and a lot of the people also view um, this kind of approach to meditation that any time they're willing to sit down and spend attempting to meditate is considered meditation, right? Because I think that, uh, as you know, as Naval says, I think he says it very perfectly when when he refers to it as the reason why most people fail to meditate is they don't realize that they have so much mental clutter they have to clear through first or to get through to that 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 you know clear clarity. And over time, it gets more and more efficient. You're able to clear through it faster, and that also just clear through it throughout the rest of your day and your life, right? And so, you know, I think the hardest thing at first is like setting out to do an hour and being like, I'm not stopping until my phone timer goes off. And sometimes you'll, the first few weeks, sometimes I spent the entire hour just like pushing through clutter in my head, right? And that's that's hard to do. That's not, it's not always the most enjoyable experience, right? So um, what do you, what about you? Do you, uh, do you use a mantra or a breath work or app or? Yeah, I, I personally am uh, pretty bought into um, breath work and have been for some time, but especially as of late. I, I actually like to, just after lunch, lay down for about 25 minutes and spend anywhere from uh, five to 10 minutes uh, doing breath work, you know, mostly through like nasal breathing techniques and things like box breathing as well, and then spend another 10 minutes quote unquote meditating where I just sit there in silence, awake with my eyes closed though, but just sort of thinking and trying to declutter as you put it. And then the last five minutes, uh, five to 10 minutes, depending on, you know, the, the day, I suppose, are spent sort of in like this like blissful nap state where I basically like allow myself to fall asleep, but I've got a really peaceful alarm that comes back on and like slowly, if I fall asleep, wakes me back up. And I found that to be like a very potent combination of like the benefits of breath work, the benefits of taking some time to clear your head in the middle of the day through sort of meditation practice. And then also the benefits of taking a nap all condensed in less than 20 to 30 minutes. So that's sort of how I've like act it together uh, in my own personal way. 
but you know everyone's different and i think at the very minimum like doing some breath work techniques and exercises for a few minutes and meditating even if for just five minutes could vastly benefit you know everyone in society but it's just sad to see that you know most people don't you know participate in those activities totally and i and i think that it's like you know how much how much would it hurt you to not watch like 15 minutes less of netflix or watch 15 minutes less of tiktoks or snapchat right it's not it's, i don't think it's very hard right um and and i think the, the biggest problem that um you know i i foresee with with the future is that you know i think that a lot of people because of social media because of notifications because of attachment to their phones are becoming addicted to this constant experience of being stimulated and sometimes it's like stillness is the key right you just sometimes you just want to sit still um but you know I, I think you and i are alike in the way that you know i believe a lot of people that also i think are in the same kind of vein of entrepreneurial startup and and kind of you know our our age and generation you know self-experimentation is the key to success right so even though i'm doing an hour right now i've i've been playing around with 30 with 15 and i i genuinely think like an hour is a luxury absolutely um and i don't think it's sustainable to do every single day um, I, I, th I think it's something that I wouldn't return to when I'm older, but I think that, you know, I, if I could split up to be like 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes after lunch or sometime before bed, I think, I think, yeah, I think that's important. Um, so, so do you have a set time that you wake up every day then? Um, no, I, I don't use an alarm. Um, just like you, I, I typically wake up anywhere from seven to seven thirty, like clockwork, just cause my circadian rhythm's pretty, pretty dialed in. Um, even if I have like a late night, quote unquote, on the weekend, you know, let's just say hypothetically, I were to go to bed at like four or five after like a long night with a bunch of friends, I still wake up, um, at like eight or nine, you know, I, I've never really slept past 10 before. I, I don't understand how people do. I think it really comes down to like poor sleep hygiene, hygiene, not to sort of remanufacture that hygiene phrase and apply it to other things. But, um, yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> I think getting your circadian rhythm in check in terms of um, consistency is really important. And I, I believe a lot of the longevity studies that they've done around the world point to um, like those blue zones, if you will, point to the, the folks, you know, who live to be 100 adopting a, a regular sort of sleep pattern. Um, so, you know, personally, I've found that to be the case in terms of like grounding my my overall being. Um, and I think, again, it's just another like really simple but underrated uh, activity that, you know, most people don't do enough of. Yeah, I, I think I think I can agree with you on that. Um, for me, it's actually like I've I, I travel so much or did travel so much when we weren't under a pandemic that um, I really focused on training my body to sleep a set duration versus a certain time, because sometimes I'll like. You know, I was in Japan for a bit and I and, you know, if I if I was stuck on the same time, you know, my my body was thrown off for a few days. But I basically just biohacked my body and tricked it into thinking that, like, there's a set duration of sleep. And it doesn't matter. I, I've tested this now. I can go to bed at 9 p.m. or I can go to bed at 5 a.m. and I will still almost exactly sleep seven and a half hours. I don't know how I did it, but it just naturally over time, just like my body sleeps seven and a half hours. So, um, which I think is a great amount of time. Cause like if I'm, if I'm working, I'll usually, and I'm, and I'm really in a groove, like 11 or midnight is when I usually stop and say, I don't think anything past this point is worth, um, the quality of time. 
and then I just pass out, and then seven seven thirty is usually a, a good spot. But I but in the summer when the when the sun sets are sorry sun rises are are great to be outside and working out in the morning. I do I do enjoy going to bed at like you know ten or so, and then waking up at like five five thirty and you know just going out. But um you know I, I I think I like that flexibility. But you know we'll see. I mean I I I flop back and forth between saying like I want to train my body to wake up at a certain time and I want to train to wake up at a certain duration. But I think at the end of the day it's like if you have a similar routine that you're following around the time you go to bed, even if you're waking up at a set time, it's just your body being used to, yeah, like the natural light that, that surrounds your life, right? What part of the country are you in right now? I'm in Seattle. Oof, nice nice place to be. I haven't uh, I haven't been up there personally. I've been to Oregon, um, Portland, and then Mount, the Mount Hood area, but I imagine yep. it, it's pretty much like, what, between 40 to 60, 65 degrees year-round, maybe a little warmer in the summer? Yeah, so um, I I grew up in Boston, so I'm used to like freezing cold, brutal winters, and then summers that are like 85 and 100 percent humidity. So I had the worst of all worlds. But um, in Seattle here, I, I just moved here actually two months ago from New York City. But uh, you know, as my experience so far, it's like today is a lovely summer day. It's gonna be a high of 78, but the morning um, and nighttime is like 55. So every single night it just drops down, really cools down. So in the morning you always have cool. I like I I love sleeping in cool, so it works out perfectly. Like I haven't had to use AC yet at all, um, which is great because during the day it's like I don't care if it's 75. Like go outside, go for a walk. Like even with the windows open, I don't mind working in that kind of, you know, temperature. And then you know as the night goes down, everything just cools down, and it's it's there's always a lovely sea breeze that just cools everything off really fast. So I don't know. It's it's, it's something that I didn't expect that I would enjoy very much, but. Um, the winters do get colder. I think it it will get in the 30s or 40s, but it's kind of a mild winter still. So compared to East Coast or Northeast or Midwest. So yeah, I was in Boston in January or February this year before COVID. And good luck. Yeah, uh, it was it was a little desolate and a little grim to be honest. Um, just super dark, tons of snow on the ground. And having lived in Austin the last five years or so. I actually hadn't seen snow since I moved from uh, the East Coast, you know, five years prior, as I mentioned. So that was a pretty brutal reintegration uh, with the sort of cold climate that the Northeast possesses. Obviously, Boston's like very, very Northeast. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah. Why, why live in places like that? Nothing against Boston as a city, but more as a climate. Why, why live in places like that if you can afford, you know, the flexibility to live elsewhere? You know, generally speaking, a place like Austin or Seattle is generally cheaper. Uh, states like Texas don't have you know, state income tax. The quality of life is generally a little bit better. I, I just don't get it. And I think I think a lot of people are waking up to that. You're, you're obviously in Exhibit A. and I'd love to hear exactly why you moved. Um, maybe it's for lifestyle reasons or otherwise. But it sounds like many, many people sort of between the age of 24 to 35, so I guess millennials, are, are realizing that and moving out of like Los Angeles, uh, New York City, et cetera, and moving to places like Denver or Austin or Seattle um, and parts of Florida too, where, you know, all of those like basic metrics that define, you know, how great it is to live in a place are much better and much more favorable. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts and why did you, why did you specifically leave Boston? Yeah. So um, kind of from the top down, right. I think that our generation especially is is of this mindset where um, they understand how important where you live 
uh, is, is to your overall life, right. And your overall happiness. And I think that, um, a lot of people get stuck and, uh, you know, it's, and people like being safe. And I think that I encounter that in every city I go to, like I always meet people who would probably be much happier in a different part of the country, but end up, um, staying where they are because it's safe and they have friends and they're afraid to meet new people and they have like a boyfriend or something other or their family's there or they went to school there or who, who knows. Right. So, but I think, I think it's a, a fear of uncomfortability it stops a lot of people from moving to places, but I always kind of look at it like why I don't, I don't see why you'd waste your life just living in a place you don't want to live. Um, so I grew up in Boston ages zero to 18. Um, my family then moved to New York city, uh, when I was in college, I went to school out in Arizona, like the rural mountains of Arizona. So like I've always loved, um, like I always try, I always try to travel as much to the mountains as possible as a kid. Um, so I always knew I wanted to go to school out West and then, Post-school, I ended up living a bit in L.A., living a bit in New York, living a bit in Chicago, living a bit in Boston. So um, and and actually Memphis uh, did a quick stint there. But um, that was for a job. But, you know, so I live in each place and and, and I, I I love New York. New York's always been, you know, close to my heart because I have, you know, lots of family there and it's always a good time. Um, and then uh, for uh Chicago, I really didn't like. Boston will always be my home, but you know, I I don't I, I can see myself spending some summers or especially falls there. I think that's the best time of year to be in that part of the country. Um, but yeah, so like I've always loved Seattle. I've always visited a lot for work. Um, and I was just like, you know, when COVID hit, I was like, I'm not gonna stay around here and chill my because my my lease ended luckily, and I was just chilling at my parents' house for like two months in uh, rural New York, and I was just like, I don't really see the point in not going where I want to be. Um, especially if that means I get, you know, access to nature and similar people and lots of access to VC money. But I think Washington is also like Texas in the fact that, you know, you have no income tax as well, which is really nice. And, um, property taxes are also quite low. Um, they're not as low as some states like Texas is definitely lower in Nevada and Wyoming and Alaska, but, um, it's, it's still, it's still lower than like a New York or Massachusetts or New Jersey. Um, but yeah, no. So I, I think for me, it's just, it's just very, very plainly, um, you know, I, I think where you are and the climate you're in and the, and the access to what you want in terms of people and culture and outdoors and, and things like that, um, really matter. And I think that's why, you know, Austin especially is turned into this this very common place you hear people moving, especially to the Bay from, right? Um, and a lot of a lot of big VCs have even moved from SF to Austin. And I get it, especially with COVID going on. You know, now everyone's moving to remote. It's like people are mass exodusing. That's not even the right phrase, but um, leaving New York and Seattle and all, a lot of these places, not Seattle, but SF and LA to, to go to these places, as you mentioned, like Seattle, Portland, Salt Lake is becoming huge. Austin is, you know, exploding, right? Um, and then you have some like Nashville's starting to grow, right? So you have these lots of towns. You're like, hey, I could... You know, for the same price of getting my one bedroom and uh, cramped building downtown, I can, uh, you know, either put a down payment on a house and pay a mortgage or I can, you know, get like a multi-bedroom flat somewhere downtown. That's cool. Right. So I think I think that, you know, all in all, you you are a product of your environment and also your environment is a product of you. But I think that, you know, people who are like, oh, it doesn't matter where you live, you can be happy wherever you are. I think I think that's true. But I think that, you know, you are just doing yourself a disservice by not living exactly where you believe you should be. Would, would totally agree. Um, you know, why pay five grand a month to live in a 
half-assed one bedroom in San Francisco when you can get just as good of a one bedroom for, for two grand a month here, save that money and um, you know also save on taxes, also save on the, the cost of food and you know transportation and live in a place where there's also tons of outdoors, um, outdoor activities to participate in. But also generally speaking, like I've found that people in Austin, this is just my personal experience, so take it with a grain of salt, but generally speaking, like people don't ask you what you do here. Whereas my personal experience in cities like New York, LA, San Francisco, you know, the introduction to anyone, whether that be at a party or a networking event or otherwise, generally speaking, is led by the, con- the, the question, like, what do you do? Or what do you do for work? You know? Yeah, and, it drives me fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous, frankly, when you break that down. Like, if that's, if that's the question you ask someone, you know, I think it's fine to ask that question. But in a natural way, after you've spoken to that person a handful of times, right? Like if it's in a social context, like eventually you'll just figure out what each of you do. And that's great. But in Austin, like that's a question that almost I almost never get asked, yeah, which I think I, is, is a sign of, of how high quality the people are here. Yeah. And I think I'd rather ask a question like, are you happy? Like, are you satisfied? Like, are you contributing to the world? Like, you know, do you, do you, you know, do you have people that are you surrounded by people in your life that actually give you purpose? Right. And I think that, you know, I having lived in New York for two years and, and having dated someone at the time that was very much into that. It's like her whole friends group and friends and family were just like driven by this, like, what do you do? What do you make kind of mentality? And so like I took the very Tim Ferriss approach where I was just like, oh, I'm a drug dealer. Like I just, you know, like stop talking to me. You know, it's like <laughs> if I have to make something up to like, um, you know, tell people like, you know, just kind of like very nicely to, to, to fuck off. But, you know, it's like, hey, it doesn't really matter. Like, I, I don't care if you're you're a stripper or you work at the local grocery store or you are the founder of a multi-billion dollar tech company. Right. Um, I don't care. Right. Yeah. It's like, are you, are you happy? Are you, are you going to be? Are, can, can we hang out together? Are you going to am I are we going to add mutual, um, you know, positivity to each other's lives? If there's if the answer is no, then then. OK, cool. Nice to meet you. But have a good day. Right. The interesting thing about your comment about Tim Ferriss is that he actually moved from the Bay Area to Austin. Yeah, that's who I was referencing. It was him. Him and Naval did it as well. Um, and there are a few other VCs and other people in that kind of vein. Well, definitely- many, many investors um in terms of private equity funds hedge funds and venture you know folks are all sort of mass exiting as the word to use the word that you used earlier or lack thereof in terms of it actually being a word are, are leaving um you know connecticut uh new hampshire oh yeah, yeah. and then obviously the the same goes for some of the firms on the west coast too and coming to austin and to your point about you know saying you're a drug dealer i'm going to take that and I'm, I'm a big fan of tim ferris too but i hadn't heard him say that i'm going to I'm going to say I trade rare organs or something like that. <laughs> Perfect. Um, well, I mean, technically I would just say it's like, um, you're like, I mean, he, he said that because of the time he was doing, you know, owner of brain quicken, which was his, like, you know, um, his, the, 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 the first product he made that he really made money with. And, and so basically he's like, I mean, he's like, I'm not lying. I mean, it is a drug, right? So he's like, I am dealing drugs, but you know, it's like, um, and and that was funny thing like uh, the four hour work week which is one of the most pivotal like seminal books in my 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 cut from, turning from an engineer to a, to an entrepreneur, um, you know a, apparently the first title of the book was drug dealing for fun and profit, uh, which I think is a great name for a book as well. But the four hour work week kind of you know no just no knocking that one. But um, perhaps a more apt uh, answer for myself would be I deal in oils or something like that. 
you know, all the products that make up Disco's uh, initial launch suite are, you know, include essential oils, specifically eucalyptus. So perhaps I'll default to that for the time being. But, you know, to your point about, um, you know, being around groups of people and families, et cetera, networks that really are hyper-focused on title and associated earnings, it's really sad, frankly. And I can count, you know, probably 10 plus times that I've been hanging out with, you know, a person that one of my friends introduced me to, or I happened to run into at one of the, the social spots that I go to in Austin or at a party and, you know, come to find out after hanging out with them, you know, they're worth $500 million or they sold some crazy company or they're an ex pro athlete or, or just something wild that in a normal, in the confines of like a yeah. social arrangement in like a big city that would be seen as like really impressive. But frankly, like people in Austin just don't give a shit. And that's why I will continue to live here until it's inevitable. It inevitably will, I think, succumb to like the large town mindset just by way of growth. But I think For we're sure. still at least a decade away from that. So I'm, I'm excited to live here and have loved every minute of it. And I'm very hopeful that it can retain some of the charm that's made it so famous for at least hopefully forever, but for at least the next 10, yeah, 15 years. Yeah. And I think, I think Seattle's the same way, right? It's like you live in this weird combination where you have like a bunch of, you know, two of the four richest men in the world live here, right? So Bezos and Gates. And so it's like, you'll, you'll sometimes if you're around the area of Redmond, like you'll see Gates just driving his Mercedes, just like showing up at the coffee shop, sitting in line, like, you know, getting ice cream, like they, they just don't care. Right. And, and also people are like, Oh cool. It's Bill Gates. Like, great. Have a nice day. You know? Um, I think an example is like I was riding my bike back from a park the other day and I saw Megan, uh, Megan Rapino, the U.S. women's soccer player, just just running, just like waving to people. You know, it's like no one really it's like no one's going to stop you and be like, oh, my God, is this person? And I think I think New York is the same way. Like if you're in the right circle in New York, people don't care. But if you're stuck in that kind of like millennial swamp, as I call it, like everyone cares. And so. Um, like the amount of times in New York, I ran into interesting people and it was just like, oh, cool, there's that person like I'll wave and like say like, have a good day, but I'm not going to be like, oh my God, let's take a photo. Um, Cause that's just, I, I think that's the worst possible thing um, anyone can do ever. Um, but I actually found that quote I was talking about. I have my iPad in front of me. I have, I have questions for you on and the four hour work week. And uh, Tim says, he's like, I, I never enjoyed answering this question because it reflects an epidemic. I was long a part of job descriptions as self descriptions. If someone asks me now and is anything but absolutely sincere, I explain my lifestyle. Mysterious means simply I am a drug dealer, pretty much a conversation editor, <laughs> which is, which is how I approach it. I think how everyone should approach it, but yeah, he's a fantastic resource. I, I've loved his podcast for many years. I think a combination of, you know, listening to Joe Rogan along with Tim Ferriss and a handful of other, you know, folks like that has definitely brought in, you know, millions of people's um, intellectual, what would you call that, like open-mindedness, I suppose, yeah, to yeah. things that are fairly esoteric in nature but are, you know, at a, at a high level, pretty interesting, even for normal people like you and me. So, yeah, I mean, things that topics, to be more specific, topics that I would include under that umbrella to sort of further explain my point would be like, maybe like breath work, meditation, um, you know, mixed martial arts, biohacking, psychedelics, all these things that yeah, are totally. sort of coming to the forefront of importance in society and culture that, you know, I think are really great things and great initiatives. And without them, you know, I don't know whether you could take Joe out of the equation and it would still happen or you could take Tim and vice versa. But 
I think they're just champions of mindfulness and well-being, and they're both super important to this country and to the culture here. Yeah, agreed. And and I think that, you know, if one thing I've learned, like all the things that have made my life better, which are, you know, um, specific exercise, sleep, diet, meditation, fasting, um, like those aren't things that like aren't taught in med school. Right. Which I, th- I find hilarious. Um, there's a great book um, called Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker. He was on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast, um, I think last year. But he basically said that, you know, he went to med school and uh, he's now like a, a Ph.D. neuroscience studies sleep his entire life. And he's just like the total curriculum of sleep in med school is three hours. It's like three hours of one day and one class. Like that's how much people training to be doctors are learning about the importance of sleep. And he's like, that's mind blowing. And he's like, they don't even mention they, they they go over exercise like, yeah, it's important. But they don't talk about like functional strength versus hit versus cardio versus like what's important. They don't go over fasting, like how intermittent fasting and occasionally long, longer duration fasts and some diets like ketosis can really help, you know, augment and offset like really serious disorders and stop cancer and disease. And it's like kind of fascinating and amazing that like meditation and mindfulness and then talking about like mental health and clarity like is never, ever talked about. And a lot of these things, it's almost like a, I don't know the word to use, but yeah, it's, it's, it's sad. And I think that I've learned more from Joe Rogan and Tim Ferriss just listening to their podcast than I have from, you know, the previous, you know, 21 years at that point, I started listening to them of just like random knowledge I gained online, which is, you know, powerful. Yep. I mean, I, I feel like the majority of the disease that we experience nationwide and globally too, but especially pertinent to, to the U.S., probably could be avoided if you know more people took their diet and exercise and recovery which i include you know sleep under more seriously um you know these are not things that are expensive you know it's free to exercise it's free to sleep for the most part um and you know it's free to meditate like these are not expensive things that only the one percent of the one percent has access to i feel like most of this important information is probably being accessed by people that are in the 1% right now. But as that's democratized, I'm pretty hopeful that, you know, we should start to see obesity rates and things of that nature drop in this country because it, it's pretty silly how, how many people die from things like heart disease and diabetes and, you know, suffer from obesity. I, I think it's more just due to the lack of education and the fact that the government, you know, largely, is responsible for touting these this food pyramid that's totally backwards. It should be flipped on its head, literally, um, yeah. in terms of the importance. Nobody talks really about sleep. Nobody talks about diet. Nobody talks about exercise and getting steps in. Like it, it's sort of popping up now as more and more people begin to take care of themselves. And millennials are largely responsible for for sort of leading this, I guess, wellness renaissance. But you know, when you when you ask the majority of people, nobody has any idea what you're talking about. Like, we definitely live in a bubble to that respect. The fact yeah, that we totally. Rogan and these sorts of people. So, yeah, I don't really know what my point is or where the future lies. But I think in talking to someone that's like minded like yourself, to, to me, I, I think it's we can both agree on the fact that the more people that learn about these things, the better off we'll be as a society. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, I, I try to teach by doing right. So, you know, I, I'd rather write an, a blog post basically saying I tried this for 15 days. Here's what I experienced rather than be like, try this thing, lose 10 pounds. Cause right. It's like, I don't think, I think the problem is, is that a lot of people associate 
like when I say get healthier and get fitter, I'm not saying like, oh, I want you to conform to the beauty standards that we hold in society. What I'm saying is like, if you get to that level of fitness, you feel so good about daily life and just your body feels whole again, right? It's like, I've talked to people who are larger and they basically say like, oh, it sucks. Like every day after eating, like I always have a stomach ache and I wake up in the morning and I spend a half an hour in the toilet. And it's like, yeah, but that's a choice, right? It's like, you don't like the, the thing isn't to keep eating what you're eating and then med mediate that with like drugs. The thing is to just fix your diet because humans were are not evolved to eat what most humans eat nowadays. Right. It's like you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't put not gasoline in a car and expect it to still work perfectly fine. Right. It's the same kind of thing. Right. And so I think that, you know, experimenting with different diets and ideas and mentalities, I think, I think it definitely is a privilege to be able to do it. Right. hundred percent. Um, but you know, I, I think I learned it's like, you know, I, Oh, ketosis sounds hard or intermittent fasting sounds hard or trying vegan sounds hard or like trying, you know, meat only sounds hard. And it's like, oh, just do it. Like, you know, if, if, if it ends up, you know, if you end up becoming in pain or something bad happens then stop it. Right. But, but it's like, otherwise just, just, you know, push through the first couple of days and see how you feel. And, you know, I think that, I think that most people, um, I, th I think a diet of any kind, and no, I don't mean like counting calories. I just mean like understanding what you're putting in your body and like how much shit there is out there. And like how much hidden processed ingredients are in modern foods. It's kind of mind blowing. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, communities like Austin, from what I've heard and Seattle, like have great access to local produce and beef and, you know, all sorts of other things that allow you to actually live a, you know, sustainable, healthy. The one thing I don't know, if, how much, how much good fish do you guys have down there? So what I do know is that the sushi restaurants here get a shipment twice a week directly from a plane from Tokyo or from somewhere in Japan. Nice. I don't know what the market looks like in terms of what I buy, perhaps at like a Whole Foods or a grocery store. I don't actually go out of my way to buy that very often. I'll eat fish at restaurants and I, I subscribe to a meal plan called factor that has fish in it, but it's not sourced here in Austin. It's sent from like Ohio or Chicago or somewhere like that. So to answer your question, you know, you definitely pay for it like you do anywhere, but uh, I, I'm sure it's not as good as it is in Seattle, for example, um, you know, or Boston, you know, one of these coastal towns that has, you know, big ports and I imagine has a pretty robust supply chain as it relates to fish infrastructure. But you know, if you came here, I, I doubt you would, you know, notice like a difference in taste or anything because, you know, frankly, Austin's a huge city. It's not as if it's a small city. So yeah, I'm exactly. just speculating here, not, not, not anything based on like factor data or actual uh, knowledge of the subject. But my guess is that, you know, Texas being, I believe the second or third largest economy in the country on a state level, I'm sure the supply chain here is robust enough, despite us being, you know, mostly landlocked. Yeah. And, and I think, I think expanding what we've been talking about, um, you know, I, I, I think at this point, yes, I agree. Like most larger economies, regardless of where you are, you're going to have access to what, what, what the demand, you know, qualifies. Right. Um, but it, it's from, from like, just like stalking your Instagram and LinkedIn and stuff like that. It seems like, um, fitness is, is really important to you. So do you have like a certain routine you follow for fitness and exercise or different things you've learned that were really like absolute game changers along the way? 
Yeah, I have a pretty regimented lifestyle, to be honest. Uh, even the way that I like enjoy myself socially is fairly regimented. Um, I've just sort of gathered bits and pieces over the last decade or so. And, you know, it's always evolving. But, you know, I have a pretty organized morning routine that involves stretching, some red light therapy, some breath work. Uh, I get in a sauna and do cold plunge hopefully at least three times a week, sometimes more, but at least three times a week. I exercise, I used to exercise six or seven times a week back when I was much more into CrossFit, but now I'm down to four times a week and I've actually never been stronger and healthier and more pain-free. And that really just comes down to recovering more and allowing my body the time to repair itself after a tough training session. Um, so in terms of my actual training, to answer your question more directly, I definitely do um, have a regimen. It's it's four days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. I have a, a coach that writes all my workouts for me. He's sort of one of those functional medicine and functional fitness uh, instructors, if you will. He delivers all my workouts to me every Sunday through this app, basically that keeps track of all my weights and progressions and sets and reps and whatnot over time. And you know we work on basically like six to eight week splits. So will progress, you know, throughout these four workouts a week for, you know, six to eight weeks. And then at the end of, you know, that cycle, we'll, we'll have like a testing week and then usually like a week of like downtime or rest. And then we'll start a new cycle based on, you know, whatever goals or, or problems or injuries I want to work on for the next six to eight weeks too. So, you know, there's definitely some lifting involved, like compound movements, deadlift, um, Romanian deadlift, bench, shoulder press, those things but also lots of like unilateral work, you know, using kettlebells and, you know, body weight stuff, as well as, um, you know, actually as of more recently using, you know, like the more traditional bodybuilding sort of like weightlifting machines in a traditional gym, um, just because I hadn't trained with those really ever. And yeah. I wanted to get some of the hypertrophy benefits of using those machines and the new Equinox here in Austin opened up about two blocks from my house in November of 2019, awesome. yeah. six to eight months ago. And so since that's opened, we've definitely incorporated things like, you know, leg extension, hamstring curls, and, you know, even using like a Smith machine to squat to take some of the load off my spine. And it's really gone a long way in terms of like my, my body composition and feeling better because before that I was mostly focused on like Olympic weightlifting and heavy kettlebell stuff, heavy barbell movements and stuff. And that, and that stuff gets old. Like you got to sort of switch things up so that your body is always learning. And, um, yeah, that's, that's really, that's really how I break down my training. What about yourself? What do you do? First off, I want to meet this trainer of yours cause I've been looking for one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, I guess my my follow up question to you before I answer that is is do you ever partake in cardio? Certainly, I I don't run like three times a week or anything. We'll do short little metabolic conditioning pieces at the end of each session. Like so, for example, I guess it's Tuesday. So yesterday's session, I had four rounds of um, you know twenty second max calories on an assault bike you know, augmented with, um, 60 seconds of a weighted plank. So the benefit to structuring things like that is I get to work my core and I guess my abs for lack of a better phrase, but also get the benefits of some anaerobic exercise on the bike. And, you know, once or twice a week, we'll also do something a little more aerobic. That's a little more steady state. So an example of a workout 
that, you know, would be aerobic in my case would be, for example, um, you know, four rounds of 10 kettlebell swings, you know, five pull-ups. I'm just making this up. So please don't judge me if the, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> a little screwy, uh, you know, 10 squats, five strict push-ups, and, um, you know, just run through that at a steady pace. And that way I get some of the, the benefits of body composition through training, like, you know, strict strength movements. But I also get some of the um, you know benefits of aerobic exercise through you know obviously raising my heart rate throughout a workout like that because you're constantly moving and not taking rest periods. So that's that's how I structure my cardio. Uh, eventually, I'd like to work some running back in. I haven't been doing that during COVID. I really like sprinting just because I think I enjoy the explosiveness and I think there's arguably no better exercise to improve your body comp and overall like power and athleticism. Uh, some people would disagree with that. I just found that to be really potent for me in particular. Um, but yeah, I don't do like an hour on the elliptical or an hour on the treadmill or out running just because that's just not interesting for me. I used to play soccer growing up, um, until I got to college and, you know, I feel like I've put enough miles on my knees to be honest with you. Yeah. I, I think, I think for me, it's, it's one thing I used to do is that and I still fall victim to this every once in a while, but I used to like focus on getting on a machine and just being like, I'm going to stay on here till I burn 800 calories or whatever. Right. And I, and then I eventually realized, um, and still am realizing, I guess I'm in, I'm in uh, denial still slightly, but just like, that's not the best way to work out. <laughs> um, and so I think that you epitomize this idea that I have been really focusing on transitioning to, which is that work harder, or, sorry, work smarter, not harder. And I think that, you know, like very, percussive specific positioned exercises especially in the world of strength and like i guess you could consider some parts of like hit as like just a general large catch-all category um when done correctly at the right tempo and the right amount of time and the right duration um can be way more useful than you like you know doing two hours on a spin bike and so but and the hard thing with me is that i used to be uh, I, used, I used to be a professional cyclist. So like I used to race mountain bikes. And so like I, I came from this world where it's like, you know, if you're doing a four hour bike race, like how you train for that is you spend a lot of time riding a bike. Right. <laughs> so, um, and, and it's, it's something where it's like, you know, there is a, you, you gain strength through lots of short sprint work and that's always good. Like in terms of threshold, um, training, but you know, sometimes just to get on a bike and ride for five hours. And I think that, you know, I do enjoy that. And I think that that sometimes like has been a happy place. So for me, it's trying to see like, I'd love to combine, you know, cause there's a sense of adventure in that too. So it's like, how do I, how do I combine, you know, really high impact cardio with really percussive, um, you know, like functional strength training. It's like, that's where I'm trying to get Nirvana with. Um, cause I do love riding a bike. Like it's not just exercise to me. And I think that it is a great exercise. Um, you know, it, it, it does, it does work out a lot of muscles, um, pretty much core down, uh, arms. I would argue that doesn't really touch, but, uh, core down, um, it, it's, it's a pretty solid workout. Um, and then if I can, I can layer in a bunch of stuff like that, then I think that's ideal. Right. Um, but yeah, I definitely want to talk to your coach about some of that other stuff, but, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think you have to do what works for you and what you like, but also I think that I spent 
It wasn't really until I left college that I ever like picked up a set of weights. Like I was always just a cardio person because I was a cyclist. And then I learned like how much strength I was only leaving on the table, but also like how much other functional fitness as a body perspective and, you know, lack of pain. And I learned that the stronger I got in my back and my core, the less back problems I had, the less problems I had. So I think that I've become more in this idea where it's like, I want to get to a point where, you know, I'm working out four or five days a week and you know, three of those days are, you know, max 30, 45 minutes in the gym with a little bit of cardio mixed in just to keep, you know, my, my VO2 high. And then, um, you know, like two days of just like three or four hours on the bike, but yeah, you know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I think it's different for each person, but, uh, definitely still in denial about, you know, what, what I think, I think most people are about like what working out really is. Right. Yeah. I mean, all, all fitness programs should be designed based on the individual and that's sort of the MO of the the team I work with, he's a close friend. His name is Jesse O'Brien and the name of the business is called Central Athlete. And basically they take on clients that uh, are just looking to personalize their workout regimens, but not, you know, participate in group training. Like they can yeah. work in a class. Like for example, if I work out four days a week and I'm like, hey, I want to take a boxing class or, or, or go hit the bags with someone. Like, yeah, we'll work that into my, my overall routine. But, you know, I think fitness, and there's still a ton of money to be made at scale in this in this realm. Fitness should be personalized. I think, you know, classes on things like Mirror and Peloton, et cetera, are good enough to get people moving. But if you want true results, like if you want to be transformationally fit, in other words, like you're 25% body fat and you want to look like a professional athlete, that shit's just not going to cut it. And (laughs) what frankly, like what frankly drives me up a wall is instances, and and, and women are not exclusive to this problem too, where women are like, hey, I I don't want to, you know, do weight training or participate in a weight training regimen because I don't want to look big or get big. And my response to that, my first response is always usually one with humor. And it's like, I've been trying to get big my whole life. And, you know, I've taken steroids. I've, I've eaten 5,000 calories a day and I'm still not as big as I want. So I can yeah, guarantee sure. <laughs> you with the utmost certainty that yeah. you are not going to get big. If anything, resistance training, just as like a concept or training methodology is what builds lean muscle and is is arguably one of the best ways to train like i I believe everybody should participate in some form of weight training twice a week and on a full body level too and there's a ton of studies that are linked to longevity and uh, excuse me that link uh, weight training resistance training specifically to longevity and you know if you're looking for a good physique whether you're you know female or male you know, that's the way to achieve it. Of course you can, you know, spruce in, you know, things like long cycling and like long cycle rides and stuff. But largely speaking, like the way you build muscle is through resistance training. It's not the only way, but it's arguably the best way. And if you're looking for a a hit of, of really potent cardio, generally speaking, like hit is a good way to go because the anabolic response to such short anaerobic activity is, is pretty massive. And, you know, generally speaking, like that can be done in less than 10 minutes. So that can be pretty potent for people that are constrained on time or, you know, people like myself that you know are doing sort of 45 to 50 minutes of resistance training and then want to get the benefits of some anaerobic exercise. in at the end, that is also fairly anabolic. In other words, like it helps build muscle and increase testosterone and those other sort of like uh, sex hormones as well. So yeah, that's sure. my philosophy on it. I think going forward again, there's a huge business opportunity a market opportunity for a brand or business that can sort of personalize fitness at scale. I haven't seen anything like that yet. 
obviously there's programs that influencers and fitness folks, you know, share, but if you want truly personalized results, you know, they have to be custom made to the individual, you know, like obviously your body type is not the same as mine. You don't, you don't live the same lifestyle as me. While we may be in principle, pretty similar, you know, there are things that I have, you know, as an advantage over you and vice versa. And, you know, by, by customizing your fitness regimen through taking blood work, doing movement assessments, and then, you know, having an in-depth you know, 90 minute meeting where you basically talk through exactly what you're looking for, you get a much more desired outcome if you're willing to stick to the program too than, you know, buying into like a mirror or Peloton or sort of at home workout regimen. That's just my take though. No, I agree. And I, I think you and I can talk uh, offline about that because there's, I mean, a couple friends have been thinking about that recently and what the best way to scale it is. And I think eventually it's like, I have other people that are also working on that. So I think it's going to be like, that's that kind of thing. I think in order to work at scale, it's going to take a tribe of people that are dedicated and willing to like build a massive system and it's not going to be easy. Right. And I think that's why it hasn't been done yet. Um, so you and I, you and I can talk about that offline, but, um, I, I guess my next question is, is, you know, kind of following up with what you said, it's like when people, you know, I, I have a lot of friends who are like, Hey, I'm trying to lose, you know, 10 pounds of fat or anything like this. And I always, I always kind of remind them it's like exercise is, is one component, but you know, abs are made in the kitchen. Right. So, um, what is your, what is your nutrition diet? Like, uh, not only just in terms of what you eat, but also like when you eat and how much you eat. Yeah, I typically take in anywhere from 3,500 to 4,000 calories a day. So we obviously are not in person. So for context, I'm about six foot on my driver's license. I put six one. Um, I weigh about 190 pounds and I, I train pretty hard when I train. So that's why I eat that much food. I also am like, okay, at least for right now with being about, you know, nine to 10% body fat, if I want to get lean, like I can do that in a week or two, just by cutting that food down to like 3000 calories. Absolutely. And this might sound like a little more crazy. This might sound very crazy and like maniacal and a little bit of like a sociopathic thing to say, but you know, these are just things that I've learned over the years. Like this is not a headache to me. I don't even have to think about this stuff. No, totally. Actually, yeah. You know, you get to a point where like, I'm, I'm probably only like a three or four out of 10 on the wellness scale in terms of my knowledge. But once you get past, you know, like a year or two of being super into this, this world, like you learn things about your body and yourself and nutrition and recovery and sleep and all this, that we're basically become second nature. So the reason I say that is because people in my, in my friend circle and whatnot, despite being generally very healthy, often think I'm like kind of crazy, but you know, the point is these are, these things are not hard to achieve if you're just willing to go get it right. Like the discipline the main sort of benefit of my regimen is that I've just created like a layer of discipline and, and it like makes me happy to participate in a, in a lifestyle like this. So that's why I've doubled down on it. In terms of my food, I eat my first meal at about 10 a.m. every day, 9.30 to be more specific, another meal around 12.30, another meal around 3.30, and then I typically try to eat at about 6.32 and then I fast uh, for the rest of the time that I'm not eating. So typically like you know, ideally 16 hours, but generally ends up being about 14 hours in terms of fasting. And I follow, I follow a ketogenic diet, but what's, what's interesting is that I learned that I was, you know, sort of, what would be the right phrase to describe this, doing myself a disservice by not ingesting, you know, sufficient carbohydrates after training. So I actually stole a page out of a biohackers playbook, um, a biographer called Ben Greenfield where essentially I, I follow like a cyclical keto diet. So super high fat, moderate protein, extremely low carb, 99% of the time, 
but my my post workout shake and post workout meal so that's four times a week is super high carb super high protein super low fat and basically what that allows my body to do is you know capitalize on the carbohydrates and replace the glycogen stores in my muscles so that i can train super hard and recover much faster because before i was never really getting the body comp that i desired so by adding in those carbohydrates after i work out I, I get the benefits of being on like a super high, like traditional, like an, a diet that an athlete would follow. Um, but I also get the mental and sort of longevity benefits of being on a high fat diet for 90% of the days and 90% of the time too. So that's sort of how I eat. Um, the food I eat in particular is, is gluten-free, um, grain-free, it's unprocessed. I don't eat any sugar for the most part besides like those carbohydrates after I train. Uh, I never eat candy or chocolate or anything like that. That said, like, I think dark chocolate occasionally is totally fine. I, I don't really drink coffee. I don't really drink tea either. I just drink a shitload of sparkling water, um, which definitely does have <laughs> some downsides to your teeth. But generally, if you wash that out with, with normal water, still water, you can sort of um, slow the effects that sparkling water has on your, uh, your gums. But yeah, that's sort of how I live my life. I know that was very much so like a rant. I, oh, that's uh, perfect. I'd be curious to hear how you sort of set up your nutrition and you know how that sort of evolved over time too. Because my, my, my eating has definitely evolved, but over the last two years, this is really what I've doubled down on because it works for me. Yeah, so, I, so you don't do any kind of like a cheat day or cheat meal during the week then? Um... So I hadn't cheated until for about three or four months until like a week or two ago when my lady made um, some pizza. It was still gluten free, but I ate it. I, I just I just I don't blame you. <laughs> I'm, at the, I'm at the level where like if I eat something that deviates strongly from my diet, I, I feel it. Like I don't feel well. I don't ever really get sick, but I, I don't I feel like lethargic. I feel weighed down. I don't feel as sharp mentally. Um, you know, it definitely has some effects on my digestion without getting too colorful on that front. So, so I generally like, I, I'm not going to go to an Italian restaurant and order like fettuccine Alfredo right now. I, I totally understand because it tastes amazing. And like for the longest time, I ate that kind of stuff all the time. But now that I've found what works for me and I feel, I feel great like 99% of the time, I, I've sort of convinced my mind to never even like crave things like that. So to answer your question, like I, I'm open to it. When I do cheat or deviate, it's typically just still within the confines of, of my eating philosophy. So I'll eat, I'll eat like from like a paleo or keto restaurant here, but I'll just get like a shitload of food and, and it'll be like the consumption or qu quantity that's the cheat, not the actual quality of the food. I, I totally believe in refeed days and stuff just mentally as well, but I, I'm just at a point where like I don't even want them. So, so that's where I'm at. Yeah, and I, I think that, that that's the hurdle, right? It's you, the, the first few days of starting a restrictive diet, you have these like moments where you're like, oh, fuck, like a pizza sounds really good or, um, you know, like a piece of fruit or something less like, you know, or something laden with sugar. I don't know, like a candy bar. And so for me, it's like I, I kind of long story short, I was bullied a lot growing up and food is always my outlet. So I was actually pretty big when I was in high school. Um, I was like five, eight two, two forty, and probably, uh, I don't know. I'd probably guess like 30, knowing what I know now, probably say like 36% to 38% body fat. So like definitely a little chubby, uh, if not more than a little chubby, but, um, 
and then it was it was so random. I went on this Knowles, which is like a, a, a basically an outdoor education school, and ended up hiking for uh, 27 days over like pretty significant distance with like a hundred pound backpack. And I came back from that trip, and I was down to like 195 in like a month. And it I think it was because not only was I didn't have a fridge or access to that, but I was just so relaxed and like in nature and also, you know, carrying a hundred pound backpack, you know, six to eight miles a day up and down mountains is significant, not only strength, but also cardio. Right. So I think a lot of that came off there, but also like the diet we were eating was like very fat, like lots of nuts, lots of peanut butter, lots of cheese, lots of, you know, some, some grain and carbohydrates. You need to, you know, obviously replenish, you know, whatever, whatever's going. And, and they, they very balance out. They don't, they don't balance out your meals, but they just give you like, you're confined to what you have in your backpack to eat. Right. So, um, and, and so for me ever since then, like I've always had a healthy and unhealthy, uh, obsession and relationship with food. And so like, I love ice cream. I love pizza, but I also love like the feeling of day four of keto after like eating like shit during a weekend, you just feel like empty and clean. So, you know, I, I think honestly it's like, I'm still in that phase where I'm still experimenting with different things. And right now it's like, um, during COVID, I kind of like, you know, got, got, you know, sitting at home, having a really good bagel shop down the street, um, you know, definitely kind of fell off the, the, the healthy eating bandwagon. But since moving to Seattle, I've really kind of started slimming down again. I'd say I'd probably at like 20% body fat the this year. Um, and I'm just slowly pushing it down, but you know, it's like, I've, I've learned like the things I have to do to just, um, I, I view it in two phases. It's like, how do I cut fat quickly? And then uh, while also maintaining, um, you know, muscle mass. And then how do I slowly build that into like an actual functional diet? Because like the, the things I'll do during that period to cut are like not sustainable for a long period of time. Right. Like right now I'm in I'm in I'm a few days into like a significant cutting protocol that I call it. And um like to outsiders, they say like, I think what you say, like you're fucking psycho. Like this sounds fucking crazy, but like I've tried it and it works. And like, once you get into ketosis, like it doesn't matter. Cause I have so much fat that I can burn anyways. It's like, whatever. Great. Um, but right now I'm doing, uh, one meal a day, strictly keto, uh, like very high fat, lots of MCT. Um, and still like doing at least working out every day, just cause I, I know if I don't, I'll, I'll start my, my body will start um, eating up the muscle mass. Right. Um, and so essentially what that means is like a 24 hour fast plus full keto, a 23 hour fast plus full keto for like about two weeks. Um, and you know, it's like, I, I do it and I never actually end up making it that long because it ends up being like a thing where it's like, okay, I'm getting the results I want. Now I'm going to start tapering it back to normal. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's like experimenting with different things. I think, I think long term, it's like, I've done a lot of research. Um, Tim Ferriss has talked a lot about this in terms of not only like cyclical keto, I think, as you mentioned, and it's really important to, you know, add in carbs, especially from a muscle growth standpoint. And so I think that, you know, you're definitely on the right track. And I think that's somewhere where, where I, where I will probably end up too. It's like, you know, getting down to exercising four or five days a week. And then after those exercises have like some meal that is super high and very functional carbohydrates and, you know, very low in fat and has a good amount of protein. But, you know, it's also a balance, right? It's like I I grew up in a family that, you know, prioritize food and, you know, have a fantastic parents that are always amazing cooks that always make incredible food. And it's usually pretty healthy, but still it's like just so good. Um, 
And so like, I think I'll always love food. And it's always like, I think I like cycling so much because when you're burning, you know, five, 6,000 calories a day, riding four or five hours a day, like it doesn't really matter what you eat, you know, like what you eat makes you feel better. Right. But you could still eat like a box of pop tarts and not gain a single pound. Um, I didn't feel the best afterwards. And I learned that, you know, after college, I was like, Hey, let's, let's eat healthier and, and end up feeling better. But yeah, I think long story short, I could go in all day about this, but I'm still in heavy experimentation mode. So I kind of split up, uh, the next, you know, next couple next, next year or so. Um, and just kind of gave myself these like 15 day segments to basically try out different things. And then the things that work well, I'll hold on to. And the things that don't work on well, I'll either manipulate, edit, or try something different. And eventually at the end of this process, I'd like to be able to say like, this is what works well for me. But, um, you know, I learned that some things that really work great, I thought were stupid at first. And then after chewing them and drying them, I was like, wow, this makes me feel amazing. I don't know why I didn't do this sooner. Right. What are your objectives? What are your goals? Uh, I'd say so right now, um, you know, I I'm good on lower body strength. Right. Um, You know, I've always maintained like pretty high muscle mass, like muscle mass from cycling. Um, You know, I am I am 200 pounds at. 19 or so percent body fat. Um, and I'd like to get down to 11%, but I'd also like to build some strength in my chest and my shoulders and my arms. So I, I think that, you know, with the person I have now, we've kind of targeted that, you know, it's, I'll still probably be around 200 pounds, but at a much lower body fat and that, that, you know, fat that I lose will just be replaced with muscle. Um, but yeah, I, I'd say, I'd say right now, my, my main goal is to get back into like sub 12 somewhere around 10, 11, 12% body fat and just have that level of fitness again. Um, and then also like be able to understand exactly like how my body works. And I think really just like, I think unhealthy eating is one of those things that the more you do it, the harder it is to, it's, it's, it's an addiction like anything else, right? Like sugar, alcohol, caffeine, they're all addictions, right? I gave caffeine two years ago. Um, sugar is something that I'm definitely trying to get as much out of my life as possible, but it's, it's hard. Right. And as someone that as a kid that, you know, it's like it's almost psychological. It's as much psychological as it is body physiological, because, you know, my mind as a kid attributed like having that piece of candy when I'm by myself uh, after like a shitty day at school being bullied all day like that. There's like a definitely a positive you know, reaction association with that. So it's like, how do I change that? Right. How do I switch what my mind views this this delicious thing as? Right. And so it's really been like this process understanding that it's not going to happen overnight. Like it's ridiculous to assume like, I'm going to be like, okay, write myself a contract, not going to touch sugar for a hundred days, like going to ignore every single craving. Uh, it's like, that's not realistic. Right. <clears throat> so, so what can you, what can you do to slowly build up over time? And it also along the way, learn what works best for your body. Cause I think that, and you know, you can, you can take someone like a Kelly Starrett or like even a Tim Ferriss and be like, I'm going to follow what they're doing to the T cause they have great results and it probably won't work for you. Right. It's like I think that's what we talked about. It's like diet, nutrition, all this stuff is so personalized. I think the problem is that we all try to use like pithy ways and blanket statements and, you know, formulas to to help people lose weight. But it's really like the best thing to do is to help them understand that, like, we need to find what works best for you first in order to be at the best level you can be. I think you're muted. You're exactly right. The, the trials and tribulations of a podcast, recording a podcast in COVID times. Um, anyway, it, it all comes back to, to discipline, which is what I was saying while I was muted for a moment there. 
I, I generally think, and this is a blanket statement, so it should definitely be taken with a grain of salt, but, you know, people have to really want to be, you know, quote unquote, fit and healthy in order to make the changes in their life and lifestyle to, to achieve that. And if you want those results quickly, you certainly need to adopt a more scorched earth policy, if you will, or approach. That said, you know, again, like I, I, I think you can attribute most of people's failure to not being able to achieve the outcome from a fitness and, and diet or whatever standpoint that they're, they're, they're sort of striving for to discipline. That's usually the main reason totally. people fall off. Right. So I used to have two gyms before I started disco and you know, we ran these weight loss challenges and whatnot. And if you give people the framework they need to succeed and you create the psychological environment for them to win, we had a huge, hugely high success rate hugely like way above like the the basic statistics of you know the success of weight loss programs and whatnot and it was by combining you know hydration sleep uh, uh you know providing four to five classes for them a week which are mandatory and uh, a, a customized nutrition plan where they literally had to send pictures of their grocery receipts to our sort of like accountability manager that's awesome. And, you know, it might sound like cliched or like a like a sort of like a hoax. They had to pay a shitload of money to participate in it too, but we got them results every time. And that's really what people are looking for. And unfortunately, like the health and wellness industry, while obviously growing rapidly, generally speaking, has largely failed the, the normal man or woman. And, you know, that's because they just don't have the tools in their toolbox to be able to succeed in a holistic fashion, right? It's it's the diet. It's, it's their recovery protocol. It's their, it's their exercise protocol. It's, you know, getting outside for 15 minutes every day to get vit sufficient vitamin D it's walking a few thousand steps every morning or evening. And if you can fire on all of those fronts together, you can almost certainly achieve whatever fitness outcome you're looking to achieve. Like I, I, I'm not someone that's special by any means. Like it's, you know, do I have to work to, to maintain 8% body fat? Absolutely. But like, I'm no different than the majority of other people. Are there some people that may not be able to achieve that because of genetics? Certainly. But the vast majority of people can achieve these like wild fitness outcomes if they just stay disciplined. And that's really all it comes down to. And in my years, like owning the gyms and then sort of following this personal journey, which by the way, I started as like 155 pound dweeb and just packed on a shitload of muscle and taught myself basically how to be as athletic as my body would let me was just all achieved through discipline and nothing else. And I think that can be applied to pretty much anything, whether that's like, you know, a business venture or a specific field you're studying in to become really good at, whether that's like a doctor or otherwise, it generally just comes down to, are you willing to put in the work on the front end to hopefully achieve that, you know, positive outcome on the back end? And the good thing about, you know, health and wellness and, and sort of achieving a, a, a good outcome from a well-being standpoint is that if you put in the work, you absolutely will succeed. This is not something like entrepreneurship where, you know, you have all these different market conditions and variables. If you put in the work and stay true to your plan, you almost certainly will succeed. So again, I, I don't really know where the health and wellness industry is heading, frankly, just because boutique gyms were like the next big thing over the last three or four years. And now that, you know, we've had a massive societal and cultural shift because of COVID, things are moving digital. I don't know what the next couple of years look like, but I still feel like the, the health and wellness industry should be able to do more for the average people around the world. Yeah. And I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that, you know, 
I one of those I had a really rough February with like COVID and being you know laid off from the clients I had and a bunch of other shit going on and just being like unhappy with where I was living and everything else where it's like I basically start a diet every three days and then like fail and have this ridiculously disturbingly gross cheat meal already like a whole pizza and a couple bags of candy and then I was just like I was working out so much and I was so stressed out and I like the entire month I lost zero weight and that was a very telltale sign to me where it's like cool it's like if I'm super stressed out and it doesn't matter if I die for two days and eat like shit the next day, it doesn't matter if I'm working out, you know, burning 3000 calories a day and exercise, like it's not going to change shit. Right. So it's like, I think, as you said, like recovery rest, as well as like balance and consistency will matter long-term more than just like short percussive, like, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things that is like, I worked out, you know, super hard two days in a row so I can deserve to eat this whole pizza and go out and drink with my friends. It's like, I mean, you, you can if you want to, but you're not going to see the results you want, right? Um, and I think that's pretty much exactly what you just said. You, you could probably pretty easily get down to 10% body fat, by the way. I don't know whether you you believe that personally or not. It sounds like you do, but, you know, that's – if you really dedicated yourself to it, which it sounds like you are, that should be an outcome you could achieve in anywhere from like 10 to 14 weeks healthily. If yeah. you obviously stay dialed in from a, you would probably have to stay at a slight caloric deficit so you don't lose too much weight, but you do start to shed some of that, uh, that body fat. And then obviously you have to keep your exercise and activity levels very high, but also rest a ton. I mean, I don't think it's unreasonable to get from 19 to sort of like 12 to 13, and then you're going to have to fight for that last three getting from like 12 to, 13 totally. yeah. to, to sort of like 10 or even nine is extremely difficult. But, you know, getting from 19 to 12 is, is totally doable, especially since you you obviously are aware and have knowledge of all the tools in the tool shed. Yeah, it's like one of those things where I feel like, you know, years of failed experimentation has led to this kind of point where I'm like, OK, I just need self-control to just maintain it. Because I just I kept being like I kept changing it and changing it and changing it. And eventually I was like, cool, well, I know enough now where I'm going to do it. And so, like, the first 15 days, the whole point is to lose like you know, and, and to people on the outside, this sounds absolutely mental, but to you and I make sense. It's like lose eight to 10 pounds of fat in one and in, in two weeks, which people are like, that's crazy. That's not healthy. It's like, well, if you utilize body systems that are already in place, I think it's only really a possible to be like remotely safe or healthy is if you utilize ketosis, right? It's like, I trick my body into consuming my own body as fuel. Right. And, and the only reason that works is like, take, for example, yesterday, um, I ate just under a thousand calories, like mostly heavy fat. I'd say like, I think it was like 70% fat, 27% protein and 3% carbs. Right. And then if I look at my Apple watch, which is obviously overestimates, um, but total burn yesterday was like 4,800 calories, including my BMR. So like yesterday alone, I burned 2,400 to just fitness calories. Right. And so my deficit yesterday total was close to 4,000 calories. That's what I weighed in this morning. Like my scale has a, you know, three, 4% error, but it's like, I dropped a significant amount of weight. I know some that's water and clearing out my system and things like that. But you know, it's like, if I do this every single day for two weeks in a row, it's like, yeah, you'll, you'll see some very real results. Right. So I, th I think, you know, it's just like, it's not easy, right. It's like just eating one meal a day and itself is, is a lot of self-control and then just, you know, restricting that to purely keto and then also force yourself to work out most days of the week. Like that's a lot, but I think, you know, if you're willing to put in two weeks of work and you look forward to that like goal and you're happy and very, 
almost this is not to be cliche, but like Zen about it, I think, and you're not stressed about it, then you can remove basically I just need a head start. I need to like I view it as like if I can if I can jump start it and show myself that I can lose a bunch of fat really quickly, it's like I'm happy to then to taper it down and do it like at a much more modulated rate. But I have to prove to myself it's like, oh, it is easy to lose weight. I just have to fucking my head down and do it. You know. Is is the biggest challenge for you generally centered around the food element? Because it sounds like the activity level stuff, which is the struggle for most well, that's not fair. It, you know, it's a combination of the activity level and the food is a struggle for most people. But it sounds like the food is mostly like the point of contention for you. Is that is that a correct assumption? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's like not even not even equivocal. Like I can, you know, I have no problem working out. I have no problem working out heavy duration. Like it's not a problem for me. Um, it's it's also like I, I will resort to cardio most of the time just because like I, that's what I'm used to. That's what I know. And so I've been working with a personal trainer just here that's like the only place open and like a mile from me um in seattle just to like you know get back into doing strength stuff and it's been it's been good um but uh yeah i I think food with me it's like i definitely am addicted to some foods and i think that's something where it's like i know i would already have had a very you know fit body if i didn't eat like a shithead Right. And I think that's something that a lot of people realize. It's like if you just fixed your nutrition, like you'd be fine. I think the problem is that I had such a problem with discipline with food for the longest time. I'd say even up until, you know, the past few months um, and past few months, I really kind of turned it around and been like, look, like, do I want these results? Cool. Like, I'm going to stop being like, this is the year I'm going to get actually in the shape I want to be. And I was just like, fuck it. Like, it's let's just fucking do it. Right. And that means that, you know, three days in or usually usually like day two or day three, where you're just like, you know what? restarting again tomorrow and having a pizza and a bottle of wine sounds great right now. And sometimes if you're stressed and the rest of your life is like not going the best, you're like, okay, cool. Like I'm going to give myself that outlet. But you know, I think nowadays I've realized it's like, no, this is what I want. Like, I don't want those things. Like I want to get in shape. I want to lose fat. Like I want to do this. This is what I want. Right. And I think that you have to decide that you want it because if you don't really want it, then you're not going to be able to do it. Right. Um, and I think, entrepreneurial and entrepreneurship is the exact same way, right? It's like people don't just found companies and make great products because they felt like doing it one day and they do it in their free time. Like that's not how it works, right? If you did, then you're incredibly lucky and you happened on like a once one in a million opportunity, right? But most for most people and most things, it's like you have to want it. You have to be willing to run your life around it and have to understand that like, yeah, there are some pain and uncomfortability and self-control and discipline that you're going to have to endure but like that will also help turn you into a, a better person right but i think i not better person that's the wrong thing to say but like a, a better person in terms of what you want to achieve but also it's like i only know i can do what i'm doing now because i've experimented with all these things individually and some things mixed together and i understand that it's like if if i was just eating like a normal diet like most americans which is like a lot of bread a lot of dairy a lot of like processed foods like you could not healthily do what i'm doing like eating like 1500 calories a day in keto you know one meal a day like it, you would you would crash so hard but once i think like the beauty of ketosis i've learned it's like if you have body if you have fat to burn in your body and you get into ketosis like you know you eat if you're hungry but most for most people it's like you're not going to get that hungry because your body's already pretty satiated with like the amount of fat on it. Right. So. I think it's also important to set like a very clear goal and objective and have a daily reminder of that. You know, it, it sounds like a little frustrating or even cliche, but you know, for me, when I was 
155 pounds, I gained 30 pounds in one summer and my back squat went from about 200 pounds to almost 400 pounds. And the way I achieved that was by eating basically 5,000 calories a day. I'm by no means condoning that and saying that's the healthy way to gain weight. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I was super aggressive about it. I stayed super focused and for 90 days I followed the plan to a T. And the way I was able to sort of find that intrinsic motivation was by, and extrinsic too, right, is by, you know, staying disciplined on an internal level. And then from an external level, I was tired of being bullied. Like I wasn't bullied to the extent that it sounds like you were, but I was tired of being small. So I was like, fuck this. I'm going to be big and nobody's going to fuck with me anymore when I'm big, or at least most people won't. And that's exactly what happened. So I just kept that in mind when I was suffering in the gym and, you know, constantly squatting and just getting beat to shit. This would have been when I was about 20 or 19. So right in the first year of college. And yeah, I mean, I attribute that to, you know, setting a clear objective of what weight I wanted to be at because gaining that amount of weight is also extremely difficult, by the way, it's ex exceptionally difficult, yeah. arguably harder depending on who you ask. No, I, I would say, I, would, I was going to say it earlier, but I would say that going from 150 to 190 or 155, whatever you said, and in, in terms of and maintaining same level of like lean body mass um, or percentage, I should say, as I'd say that's infinitely harder than losing a hundred pounds of fat. Like it's, <laughs> yeah, it's important to know though. I was also 20 years old. I yeah. <laughs> was, was buying a ton of food and had access to money to buy the food. And, you know, I had a lot of the, the, the levers in my corner that I needed to pull, right? Like some people don't have the luxury of being able to afford that much food if they want, you know what I mean? So I had all, all the things were, were sort of right for the environment. It was a ripe environment for me to be able to go do that. Um, and that's not to say I probably didn't add a few pounds of body fat, but over time I, I sort of leaned those out. And, you know, I think the same could be said for, you know, starting a company, right? Like generally, like there's a few reasons you would do something like that. Typically financial freedom and like time, you have the freedom of your time, um, which can be tied to financial freedom is important. Um, you know, helping people or solving a problem that you've experienced is usually a part of it too. And, you know, to some extent, like, you know, succeeding and using other people that you don't like or people that have been successful that you're either jealous of or envious of, to use a better word, as motivation as well is also a tool I've used, right? Like, I definitely want financial freedom. Like, I want to be able to go wherever I want, whenever I want, and not have to worry about money. I'll be totally honest with you. That's definitely a part of it. When it comes to, you know, my business in particular, like, I'm also solving a problem that I personally was frustrated with and was dealing with on a daily basis. In, in my case, why are there all these female and, and dermatology skincare brands and why isn't there a brand for men that services my needs and why isn't it relatable, et cetera. So that's a personal need that I was really frustrated with and come to find out like turns out other people are as well. So that's like two of the three boxes for me. And then the third is like, you know, I've seen plenty of people succeed around me and in, in my family and my network, um, in my friend groups, et cetera. And, you know, say, wow, like they just got lucky. Obviously, it's more complicated than that. Timing's everything. They, they had the resolve and discipline to stay focused when they probably failed a bunch of times. But my point is, you know, I see them and maybe this is egotistical or narcissistic, but I'm like, if they can do that, I can do that, too. So that's a part of my motivation for, you know, sort of waking up every day and working 10 to 12 hours, sometimes more on my business, because you know, I want that financial freedom and eventually the freedom of time if we exit, hopefully. I personally feel like I, I'm solving a problem that I experience and I know for a fact other people do as well. 
And then lastly, like when I have dark times or, or get sort of demotivated or unmotivated, excuse me, um, you know, I look to I look to those around me, one to lean on. So I have a strong advisory network. And I think that's important to lose something like losing weight too. like you got to have an accountability network because that's critical, but also to the people around me that have succeeded to where, you know, may or may not be true. But I tell myself internally, like, listen, if this person did it, so can I. And that's what keeps me going. So the reason for the rant is is more because I think those strategies can be very helpful from a weight loss perspective as well. And when we had, you know, the gyms a while back, my team would essentially ask people like very probing and borderline like aggressive questions, not to make them feel uncomfortable, but to put things in perspective. So a good example of that would be, you know, a woman that is 300 pounds who comes in and wants to lose the weight. She's paid thousands of dollars to trainers, diet programs, you know, South Beach diet, blah, blah, blah. It's usually the same story, but has never had success. And, you know, by simply asking her a question like, you know, are you going to be able to pick up, you know, your grandchild over your head? And when they say, yeah, no, then you just, that really puts things in perspective and usually kickstarts their motivation. I'd say like, you know, 99 times out of a hundred, that's, that's what gets them to buy that, that, that was what used to get them to buy into our program and what, and what was, you know, keeping them motivated. You know, one time out of a hundred, you'd have someone who'd be like, Oh, I'm offended by that. But you know what? We don't want them in our gym anyway, if they get offended by that, because those are important questions that you have to ask that you can use as motivation. So that's, that's the reasoning for my rant about what keeps me motivated on the business front. But I think those sorts of strategies are important for anyone doing anything really, especially as it relates to founding a company or losing weight or gaining weight, et cetera. Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more. So I actually want to, I think you and I probably talk about diet and exercise. Uh, happy to chat later on it uh, for hours, but let's transition slightly um, to talking about disco. So what, you know, you you very, you, you basically answered my first three questions about disco, um, but, you know, what was that process like from understanding, you know, that there was a need for a truly catered to men skincare brand uh, or even it's, it's beyond skincare. I think that's what you're envisioning. But, um, you know, like, like what was the process of saying, like, we're going to do this and we want to like, what were the, what were the goals you were trying to achieve at first? Yeah. So, so personally, I, uh, I've been a long time skincare user, uh, in terms of using skincare products since I was in my early teens, I had a family friend that was a very prominent dermatologist that explained to my brother and I, the importance of using sunblock and you know moisturizing and cleansing at a very early age so i was fortunate in that i had a massive head start especially over most guys and you know over time just realized that there wasn't really many options in the male market for men and this came at a time when i'd had the gyms for about four years so this was in you know middle of 2018 or so and you know obviously this is after on the back of the success of things like harry's brands like harry's dollar shape club and many others sort of direct consumer men's brands that won in the shaving space and category and, and felt like, hey, why isn't there a men's skincare brand that's similar to those? Like obviously they could, they have some skincare products they sell, but why isn't there a Glossier or Drunk Elephant? You know, those are two famous female skincare brands for men. And it was really that simple. Um, you know, one day I looked at my, my bathroom counter and noticed I had a handful of products from female brands, a handful of products from unisex brands, and one or two products from masculine or male brands, but you know the branding of the masculine brands were were hyper masculine, um, you know, very black, just very traditional, right? 
And why isn't there a more relatable brand that you know offers the full suite of skincare products to men at a sort of mashed you know price point? So sort of fifteen to twenty dollars. So it's relatively premium, but it's also not you know a pharmacy brand. And you know harps on you know my personal belief system, which is you know leveraging one of natural and clean ingredients, but you know ingredients that actually work. So set out sort of Q3 of 2018 to start building this business centered around men's skincare and you know eventually we'll move into other elements of the bathroom too but you know skincare is the biggest opportunity from a business standpoint and also frankly is the earliest stage in terms of its adoption nationwide for men so yeah we've got a long way to go because it's really a destigmatization play for men and guys like yourself understand that you know it's it, hey it's actually okay to meditate practice yoga play with your diet um, you know talk about mental health etc and also use skincare products but a lot of men are still unfortunately stuck in the the thinking or line of thinking that you know this is a sort of a gay practice or this is a feminine thing to do or a metro thing to do these are all like labels that we hear on the regular but fortunately where society is moving those are sort of being broken down and torn down and more and more men are adopting you know a philosophy that involves open-mindedness towards things like yoga and um, you know using skincare products amongst many other activities and practices as well but the point being we're really entering a, a period of time COVID aside to where men are sort of having an awakening as it relates to their personal health right like men have always been seen as these very rigid masculine impenetrable figures but the reality is like that's impossible everybody has their own demons and mental health issues that they struggle with men and women and, you know, largely women have gotten the focus, surprisingly, despite, you know, us being a largely like male dominated society uh, in terms of the products and services and companies that service like mental health, you know, well-being, health, fitness, et cetera, and skincare as well. And that's now changing, fortunately, for the better. So that's a trend we're definitely capitalizing on. And, you know, as we are, as we grow, we'll definitely invest more heavily into, you know, marketing campaigns that center on education and destigmatization. So it's definitely an exciting time. Yeah. And I actually saw a LinkedIn post you posted this morning about, um, you know, having some people that have tried your products, you know, answering these very detailed follow-up surveys to kind of gain that level of customer feedback and interaction, which I think is pivotal nowadays as we kind of move into this market where, you know, customization is key. And I think that, you know, um, there was a brand called, uh, oh, is, I think it's Hawthorne. Um, and they make you do that test that basically, that, that basically tells you what to use. Um, but then after like doing the test twice and looking at their set, I realized that that's just like, that's a marketing ploy and they're really not actually customizing anything. They're just like giving you like, which of two shampoos are you, which is not, that, that's not customization. Right. So I think it's like, this space not only needs to be revitalized in terms of that, you know, it's okay for men to use, uh, not, not only okay, it's like it should happen, right? Um, like I got rid of my acne very at a young age because I was also taught, you know, I'd luckily right before college, it was like, hey, if you wash your face every day and you moisturize and you put on sunblock, like not only will you have a much lower chance of getting, you know, skin cancer in the future, but also like you're going to look better and feel better, right? Um, like the skin's the largest organ as that's part of the human body, right? It's like, and people overlook it so often and it blows my mind. Um, but I've been very intrigued by, um, your stuff and I actually found you because someone I follow on LinkedIn 
like commented on something you just posted and I was like, Oh, this is interesting. And then I was like, Oh yeah, this, this dude is on to, onto something. And then, uh, I noticed we had some like mutual connections to people. I was like, yeah, why not? Like, I, I think him and I are, are in the same vein, but yeah, no, I, I think that you're on to something huge in terms of, you know, something that's needed to happen for a long time. And unfortunately, like there is still a massive stigma around that. And I think that that stigma is honestly perpetuated more by women than men. Um, and I've gotten in hot water for talking about this before, but it's like if if anyone when I was growing up, anyone that made fun of me for using like self-care type things was always women. It was never the men. The men were just like they were they were they were reflecting and responding to what the women they were attracted to in this case were were doing. Right. And this case was perpetuating this idea that like men should be this like, you know, dirty human that's like, you know, doesn't take care of themselves and i think that that's something that i picked up on and it's definitely changing but um yeah i don't want i don't want to pay myself into a corner there but i think i think you know what i'm talking about yeah i i definitely won't um comment on our competitor hawthorne but i i feel like you know they're one of the the initial brands to sort of take a foray and in investment into the space they started with more body care products but i think you know whatever the idiom or expression is, right? It's like rising tides all rise together or whatever. I think there's plenty of space and room for multiple brands to win, um, whether they're positioned in a masculine um, variety like Hawthorne or they're more approachable and relatable, in my opinion, you know, like Disco. There's there's room for both, right? And the fact remains, like, we're both super early stage in the space. Only about 20% of guys use skincare products over the age of 24. And that's projected to grow at about 10% annually over the next decade. So we're just touching the surface as it relates to this category. And I think what's very validating is that there's a number of other competitors popping up pretty recently as well. So that's pretty validating. And in my opinion, the, the, the brands that will win are the ones, obviously from a business standpoint, that can acquire customers at a profitable rate and keep them around, of course. But from like a more philosophical and positioning standpoint, are the ones that work towards destigmatization of skincare and are the ones that can really tap into the psyches of guys like you and me and persuade them to, you know, lose the thinking that using skincare products is, is like a feminine exercise and start buying, you know, a scrub and a moisturizer and a cleanser and things of that nature. And eventually it'll get more advanced, right? To where they're using toners and sunblocks and serums and things, but you got to start somewhere. And, you know, the products that we offer were intentionally, you know, formulated to be simple uh, in terms of their positioning so that, you know, even someone who is advanced can use them. But, you know, ideally someone who's never used skincare products before as a novice could come onto our site and sort of understand, you know, what products they needed to basically start a skincare regimen from zero or from scratch. So over time, what, what, what you can, what you'll inevitably see is that first there'll be a massive adoption of men using skincare products then they'll sort of become more educated and start investing in more like fringe products. And eventually what you'll have, I know this sounds crazy and this isn't something that I personally do, but eventually like men's makeup will be a, a big thing in, in the States. It's not here yet, but if you just look to South Korean beauty trends, which is sort of like the de facto leader in the world for how beauty, skincare and makeup, et cetera, trends work, basically their men are already using makeup like at scale and it's very normal there. And I'm not saying that, 
we won't adopt it because obviously we're different culturally and we're in a completely different part of the world. But pretty much every trend that has gone down in South Korea has happened in the U.S. three to five years later. Absolutely. And, you know, where things are heading, I personally believe that, you know, that's where it'll end up. Do I think it'll be like a five to 10 step regimen like females? Absolutely not. I don't think so at all. But I feel like there's already a few companies, one's, one's called, I think, Strikes, um, you know, that allows men to like touch up like big blemishes or acne spots. You know, I'm sure you've had it happen to you. Like I've had instances where I'm about to go out for the night or on a date or just a meeting or whatever it may be. And for whatever reason, like there just happens to be a massive pimple, like just a gross, gross pimple somewhere on my face. And it doesn't happen often, but when it does, like it sucks. And even if you're someone who's confident and, you know, has plenty of self-esteem, et cetera, you know, like I feel like I do, that pimple is not something that you want other people to see, especially in like a social context. So, you know, I think something we're looking at, frankly, is like cover up, spot treatment cover up for things like that, just as like a first port of call for guys. And then we can sort of evolve into the like the tinted moisturizers and things like that over time. I'm not saying we'll do that for sure, but. You know, I think that's a problem that many guys have had and experienced personally, but they would never really be willing to share. So, yeah, yeah lots of agreed totally on that. And I think that, you know, where I see a need for is that I think it should be a two step process. Right. It's like imagine you sold a product that had step one, you know, helped you actually cover it up. And then step two later, it, up, it helps you clean that off and also cleanse the area for, um you know, the, 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 the best path to healing and letting the, you know, the pimple, you know, either, either remove it properly and actually cleanse the area with some salicylic acid type solution. Um, or you would, um, let it, you know, heal itself. But, you know, as someone, I, I had really bad back acne, um, as a kid and it got worse cause it was like, it was a nervous habit. I just picked my back and, you know, obviously, um, when I learned as like, an, I think as, as a ninth grader, I was like, I didn't know I was spreading more acne by just like popping pimples on my back and not actually cleaning it. Right. Which is something you, something you learn as a kid. Um, but, but yeah, I think, I think it's something where it's like, I, uh, fortunately have very little scarring because I was privileged enough as a kid to, to have a mother that understood like the amount of, um, like shame and self, uh, like I was so self-conscious of, of that. I never took my shirt off. And so, you know, it was actually through my dermatologist. Um, I got a couple back peels, um, when people that aren't familiar, they basically just, you know, take a couple medical grade needles and just drain everything in your back and then take this like 30 to 40% salicylic acid solution and just basically scorch earth your entire back. And, you know, doing that once a quarter for a few years, just not only removed most of the scarring, but also basically made it so that, you know, acne really doesn't pop in my back anymore. And I think that that's something where it's like, you know, um, I made the situation, I made the situation worse by doing what I did, but also, you know, there are definitely ways that exist that aren't you know, crazy expensive in-person back peels that can help a lot of people um, do that. Because I think, I think the part, other part of that is the societal thing, right? It's like, I would love to have a pimple on my face and then just forget about it. But there's definitely a societal trend that like, no one wants to see that. And they are, they are kind of gross, like in my opinion, but you know, it's like, how do we not only help destigmatize skin problems, but also, um, you know, like create solutions for people that do want to remove them and do want to cover them up. But I think that's, that's definitely a very like noble and important and lucrative path that you would set yourself on. Hopefully so. I, uh, you know, remain pretty focused on just the basics for now. So we have five, um, 
fairly entry level skincare products that if, if you were just to use those, you'd be pretty set. Um, then we also sell deodorant and body wash as well, which are selling pretty well just because of the positioning of them being natural products in nature and, you know, not using a lot of the harmful chemicals and toxins and, um, preservatives and whatnot that, you know, the majority of pharmacy brands possess in their formulas. So absolutely we're off to a, a solid start for sure. And I think, you know, just as the men's skincare adoption rate grows, you know, we'll sort of grow alongside it. And, um, you know, hopefully one of these, uh, incumbents Procter and Gamble or Unilever one day will come along and, uh, want to include us in their house or portfolio of brands. But until then, you know, we're super focused on just making sure customers have the best possible experience with the brand. And, you know, we're just starting to launch our blog later this week. So where we can start educating consumers, you know, like you and me on, on a weekly basis and short uh, consumable tidbits. And, you know, over time, you know, hopefully this, this really sticks with customers and, you know, they choose us over some of the competitors out there. Yeah. And, and I think, I think it's a good point. Deodorant you bring up. Um, and, and that's the thing. It's like, I have definitely more sensitive skin than most people. Um, and I've used all deodorants under the sun and I thought I found, um, I'm a pretty heavy user of Aesop, um, the Australian brand, uh, for their, their face stuff. It just works really well with my skin, but, um, you know, I definitely want to give your stuff a try. And I think with deodorant, it's like I, their stuff's great in terms of no irritation, but it sucks in terms of like a deodorant. Right. Um, and then Malin and Getz, uh, I've tried their deodorant and their stuff is good for a while, but I, it must have been a recent batch change because like I had like the worst uh, skin irritation. I actually had to go to the my dermatologist and be like, hey, like, what do I put on this so it doesn't you know hurt? And then so since then, I've just been kind of trying different things. But yeah, that's that was like my big question to you. It's like what different what differentiates your deodorant from let's just say like the other competing premium natural deodorants out there because i feel like on instagram three times a day i get deodorant because my phone's listening to me always obviously um like three different deodorant brands that are new that i just see pop out of the woodwork right well i think it's important to look at the formula too and make sure that you know you personally aren't allergic to anything in there i i think before you do that even you know, you need to discern the difference between an antiperspirant and a deodorant. Um, for those that don't know, antiperspirant blocks you or stops you from sweating by clogging your pores, historically through the use of aluminum in the formula. And deodorant are, deodorants primarily function as a, a masking agent for smell and scent. And basically the way that deodorants work is, you know, once sweat comes out of your, your sweat glands and your armpit, what causes like someone to have body odor is the mixing of that liquid or perspiration with the surface level of your skin, so your sebum. And that's what actually causes body odor. Most people don't know that. They think that sweat smells. Sweat, generally speaking, in a healthy individual shouldn't smell that bad. And you know, by using a natural deodorant, you're not only not clogging your pores with aluminum, you're basically you know, doing a service to your body by not forcing it to sweat elsewhere. So a little known fact about antiperspirant is that, you know, by clogging the sweat glands in your armpits, that sweat has to go and perspire and, um, you know, come out of your body somewhere, right? So it chooses somewhere else in your body to come out. And that could be anywhere, you know, from your butt to your private parts, to your leg. I, I, I can't speak to the exact science of where it chooses to come out, yeah, but totally. it will come out somewhere. It'll be excreted somewhere. And it's not in your armpits and that's not healthy and that's not natural. That's not the natural 
that's not the natural process your body adopts to perspire. So by switching to a natural deodorant, you're already doing your, your body a service by letting it sweat the way it was built to. And, you know, from there, you just need to test a few different products to see which one works with you. Um, typically speaking, we ask customers to wait two to three weeks as a sort of adoption window to allow their body to adjust. And eventually over time, you know, we have a pretty high success rate with most customers. So, you know, definitely give us a try. The, the website's letsdisco.co. So not .com, it's .co, letsdisco.co. And our natural deodorant um, stickers for about $12 and then a little less than 10 if you buy it on subscription delivered every three months. So pretty competitively priced with, you know, the native deodorants of the world, if you will. Yeah, and I think that that was a good, a good point to add because um, most people don't know the difference and uh, end up just realizing they're putting that much shit in their body. And I haven't last time I used an aluminum deodorant was probably in high school, and uh, I switched to to I haven't used any any antiperspirant or anything with aluminum in it, and probably in eight eight or so years. And so, you know, and I think that's that's made a huge improvement in itself, right? Um, and then also sometimes it's like you know I'm if if you make a good point, like if I'm, if I'm having a rest day at home and I'm not working out and like I'm during clean eating, like I don't have to put on deodorant. Like I don't smell that bad, you know? Um, and I think that's another thing too, where it's like, um, some brands try to attack deodorant in different ways, but I think the way you do it is the right way where it's understanding how body odor is made and not only how can we help neutralize that smell, but also help create a product that is, is leaves your skin better than it was without it. Right. And I think that's that's where the future of skincare is. Right? It's not you're not trying to solve a problem. You're trying to make something better and solve a problem. Right. Yeah. And I'm not going to pretend like our deodorant and skincare products work for everyone. Right. You need to do some testing. I think it's important to first and foremost, look at the clinical integrity of the company if you can. And generally speaking, like the way you can do that is by looking at the active ingredients um, on the specific product you're looking at. And the way you do that is just by looking at the first few ingredients on the ingredient label if they're marketing, you know, XYZ ingredient on the, the product page you're looking at, and then that ingredient is like one of the last ones on the ingredient label, that means that that's not actually high enough of an active percentage to achieve the benefits that they're marketing. And that's generally like a pretty shady way to um, position your products. In other words, you know, during our formulation process, I actually brought in a dermatologist as a medical advisor. It was actually the childhood friend. Um, our family friend growing up and nice. she consulted on the formulation of all of our seven products. She went to Yale for medical school is a professor, assistant professor at Johns Hopkins of dermatology, the school of dermatology there, and then also has her own private practice. So she's definitely no dummy when it comes to formulating products and understanding the benefits of them. And you know, my MO to her was that the line has to be quote unquote clean and natural and vegan, but I want the products to actually work so that we don't, you know, pigeonhole ourselves with the stigma of being yet another natural brand, but you know, a brand that doesn't, that has products that don't actually do anything. So we made sure to include really powerful active ingredients within each SKU. So we've been, we've been getting really great rave reviews from customers, um, you know, around the country that have tried our products. So we're pretty pleased with how V1 looks like. And then in V2, um, we may or may not be rolling out, you know, a sunblock and a few other pretty exciting products on the skincare front as well. Um, so that's where we're at. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I think, uh, time wise, we should probably get moving soon. So, you know, you and I both have, uh, I, I, do you have a strict timeout? I don't know if we get, we're kind of wrapped it up in 15 minutes. That'd be cool with you. 
Uh, yeah, I'm supposed to be on a call at 3.30, but I can stay till 3.40 if you want. Cool. All right. I'll try to make it out in less than 10 then. Cool. All right. Well, um, we got through like a quarter of the questions I had. So I think, you know, I'll be in Austin soon because it's definitely one of the places that I'm looking to launch uh, something very soon. But yeah, so we'll talk separately about that. But yeah, so um, similar to Tim Ferriss, um, I have some quick kind of um, get you out of here questions that, um, you know, can be answered in one word or many words, but um, really up to you. And so the first one is, is there a story that your family or parents like to tell about you? Um, yeah, there's many. Um, the one that I think they enjoy the most is one where I just embarrass myself. And cause I try not to, like, I don't really speak unless I'm like almost a hundred percent sure that I'm correct about something. And one day I was driving with my mom and we drove by, um, this sign, it was around Christmas time and it was just like a hand painted sign, you know, that was marketing like a, a Christmas tree business, um, that pops up every year. And on the sign, it said the, the phrase, uh, U as in the letter U and then cut Christmas trees. And I was maybe like 13 or 14 at the time, maybe 14 or 15. And I just blurted it out without even thinking about it. What's a U cut Christmas tree? And obviously like immediately realizing <laughs> yeah. self cut, but you know, while it may sound trivial to the listener, this was a particularly hot moment for my parents because they never let me live this down. They bring it up every fucking Christmas. I'm never going to hear the end of it, frankly. And, um, yeah, I think that was a lesson to me. Like I already at the time, like prided myself in being right, probably more time, more than I should. And ever since then, like I, I, the lesson I walked away from, from such a simple blunder is, you know, only speak when you're almost certain that you're right. Like, obviously you won't be right every time, but, always try to like wait a moment or pause if, if you feel the urge to like blurt something out, whether that's in like a discussion or an argument or just like in a harmless environment, like the one I was in, in the car with my mom. But I think it's a, a rudimentary story, but a pretty significant takeaway if I'm being honest. I, I do love that. But you know, I think your parents just love you. That's why they give you. Shit yeah, for sure. It. Yeah, so. that's what we call it. <laughs> um, is there something you believe in that most don't? Yeah, these days, I think um, I, I like to err on the side of like data and logic. And I realize that is not the be all end all and like people and emotions matter, too. But yeah, I'm generally of the belief that like anything is up for debate and discourse, especially as it relates to things like politics and, um, you know, things of that nature. And I feel like, unfortunately, where society is heading it doesn't look like, you know, open dialogue is going to be a part of things. And that makes me really sad. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but that is almost like a, like a contrarian opinion um, these days, which obviously is unfortunate. You're, you're a hundred percent right. And I think uh, a podcast two ago with, I had it with a, um, one of an executive coach named Taylor Winters. Um, we talked about that for about an hour Basically, the fact that, you know, it's like the downfall of modern society will be the lack of ability not only to have discussion, but also the fact that it will be censored and it will be compressed and condensed. And that, you know, like most of the important 
I think I think all the positives that that come to society come from open discussion where everyone's able to air their opinion. And then we basically decide together because this idea that we're all just going to cancel each other that don't ad- adhere to like one single idea that the, the, the masses that the riots are screaming is is really dumb. And I hope that we there's 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 a loud majority that's j- jumping on the same wagon as you and I being like, OK, we just need to t- have more conversations and understand that not everyone's always going to agree. But, you know, I think that. Most people at the end of the day are on the side of like making sure that everyone is, you know, treated the same and that we can also work on problems together. But the problem is, is that there's too many people on the far sides that are screaming really loud that we kind of need to, you know, come together and be like, OK, let's have an actual real discussion about this versus just like screaming and canceling. But yeah, that's- cancel culture needs to be canceled um, altogether. And I think it's improbable to. um build like a persona that hasn't made mistakes before. Like everyone's made mistakes. Most of the people that are doing the canceling as well are often generally speaking, like not the most successful people themselves. So, you know, there are certain people that should be canceled, frankly, like blatant acts of racism and misogyny and race. Like those are all, yes, that that is uh, without a question, like a reason not to buy into the patronage of like a famous person. But People being canceled for like making a joke uh, out of context, you know, 20 years ago, like that doesn't make any sense to cancel them. Right. And yeah. it's really sad that society has come to that point. And but I think an important thing to remember is that, you know, most of the, the media and the people that are loudest these days only represent like a small faction of society when in fact, like most people generally speaking are fairly reasonable and are open-minded and willing to hear the other side of things. That's not to say most people don't get emotional in those types of discussions, but I think generally speaking, if you ask people, they would likely tell you that, you know, they, they want things to be pretty centrist and pretty reasonable and are willing to have a discussion. So I think that's something important to remember these days that, you know, most of the voices we're hearing from are generally like the loudest and only represent a small percentage of folks. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and like three really quick points on that was, um, you know, I think as we just talked about, um, I think that the people that are usually loudest and, and fastest to cancel um, are actually the ones that are usually guilty of that same thing themselves. Um, and they do it as kind of like a coping mechanism. And I think also part two of that is that, you know, like someone said this very ideally, someone said like, we should cancel cancel culture. And someone was like, the first person was like, oh, but what about like rapists and murderers and, and, and racists? And it's like, we're not talking about criminals. We're talking about like members of society that want to learn and educate themselves and grow and help build a better world. Right. It's like, we're not talking about the, the, the inevitable shitheads. Um, and actually funny you mentioned that because it's like, you know, I view myself as a centrist as well. Um, and it seems like you do too. And Barry Weiss, who's like runs the New York times opinion section, the New York times has been all over the place the past week because of what's been going on between, um, a journalist named Taylor Renz and a bunch of venture capitalists, uh, Balaji and Ben Horitz and a few other people. Um, but she actually just resigned, uh, like 30 minutes before we hopped on this call. And my friend sent me the resignation thing. And there's this one sentence that is so powerful. Where it's like the work of Adolf Ouch described in the famous 1896 statement to make of the columns of the New York times, a forum for consideration of all questions of public importance. And to that end, to invite intelligent discussion from all shades of opinion. Ocha's idea is one of the best I've encountered. And I've always comforted myself with the notion that the best ideas went out, but ideas cannot win on their own. They need a voice. They need a hearing above all. They must be backed by people willing to live by them. B 
being a centrist and walking into the office should not require bravery. I think that's like a very powerful point. It's like, look, like this is not just a problem in social media. This has become a problem in traditional media by these, you know, these halls that we used to hold up as being like one of the, the scions of truth and understanding. Right. Yep. I, I read that uh, resignation letter as well. And that was being shared pretty prominently amongst my group of friends. I, I think it's spot on. And it's really, it's really unfortunate that we've come to this place where people are being canceled. I think the instance of um, tech and VC journalism is particularly hilarious. Like obviously VCs are guilty of tons of cliches, um, you know, like wearing vests and wearing Allbirds and thinking they're more important yeah. than they generally are. Like I, I, that's like funny, right? Like that's a funny take on it. And it's largely like pretty true. But the fact is like the amount of wealth and um, opportunity and jobs and innovation amongst many other things that these venture folks have created over the last 50 years is incomprehensible. Of course, it's probably quantifiable, I'm sure somehow, but you know, most of the devices and the irony here is like most of the devices and software technologies and apps, et cetera, that the journalists who are criticizing them are, are, are funded by VCs. So, and most of these journalists have never invested or never led a company for the most part again, generalization, but what, where do they get off to where they can, you know, sort of tell VCs how to run their businesses and, you know, sort of conduct uh, diligence on and pass judgment on how they're investing their LPs money. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. And I know that specific issue related to clubhouse, but that was a private forum where journalists are not allowed. And obviously that journalist, you know, found their way in, um, which I don't, you know, discredit, like you got to be resourceful. And as a journalist, like they were just doing their job, but to cancel someone for saying something in private under the context of an app that is literally intended to be private conversations is so hip- hypocritical. It's like almost laughable. Another good example yeah. of that without getting into the weeds too much is the gentleman, um, the CEO or founder, I can't remember which t- what title he holds, but is the founder of that Goya foods company. He came out yeah. <laughs> and the irony is like, he's Hispanic and employs, you know, tons of minorities. And here we are canceling this guy because he said he supported our current president. What? Like, yes, I understand many people don't like Trump, but when you think about that conceptually, it's so laughably ironic that you're canceling someone who literally is a minority and literally employs tens, if not hundreds of minorities. That just doesn't make any logical sense to me. And we're heading down a really dangerous path if we keep doubling down on these sorts of cancelings. I think it all comes from, and I think the Taylor Lorenz clubhouse thing all came from, and the same thing with the Goya thing, like people feel like they need to pick, take a side, pick one and stick with it regardless. And I think that that's kind of unrealistic because our opinions are dynamic things. They're, they're Rorschach inkblot tests, right? They're, they're things that can be changed. And the best opinions are ones that are willing and open to change based on new information, right? I think that we become so hard in this idea that it's like, I'm a liberal fuck Trump, regardless of what happens, like, fuck it, you know? And I think that that's the problem, right? Where sometimes you'd be like, oh, new information came in. All right, let me recalibrate. Okay, I, I feel this way now. Great. And I think if we were all became a bit more individualized and less like group think mentality, which is terrible in all aspects, I think we'd be probably better off. Yeah, no disagreements here. Um, I think the irony is, that those touting the most open-minded and sort of like liberal concept of thinking are actually adopting like an like an illiberal 
mindset in terms of shunning opinions that don't sort of conform to their narrative. And that's really dangerous, right? Like I generally am like centrist and maybe a little right leaning, but for whatever reason, like when I find myself speaking to people that don't share my opinion, they immediately adopt like a strategy of ad hominem where they're attacking my character and not my ideas. And I'm meanwhile, I'm here for the most part trying to learn and understand their point of view. And that's the context in which I approach most conversations. Whereas they're just immediately shutting down and just getting emotional in response to my ideas. And again, not all, not all people who hold different opinions than me are like that, but I'm, I'm seeing that become a theme and it's really scary. And I know we've said that phrase like a bunch of times, but you know, where does it go from here? Is quite frankly, like my answer, because, you know, I'm sure, you know, just like me, like you said things probably via text or Instagram, who knows, emails, whatever that you regret and that you wouldn't, you know, look fondly of, you know, now that you said 10 years ago or whatever. So are we going to get canceled if one of those comes out? I sure hope not. Right. Um, so it, it's really scary for anyone that, you know, either runs a company or has a decent position in any sort of business or otherwise, um, because at any moment for, for no better reason than the fact that somebody has a grudge against them, they could surface something that they did 20, 30, even 40 years ago. And immediately their livelihood is gone overnight. Um, yeah, so I think exactly. just conceptually, that's really, that's really frightening. And, um, you know, I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, as, as, as us millennials start to take control of the government in the coming terms after this next election, that people like, you know, Dan Crenshaw and the more reasonable people on the right, left and center are able to sort of recognize what's going on and sort of realign or re-steady the ship that is America so that we can return you know, to our sort of position as the world power, because in my opinion, China is overtaking us very quickly, especially as we're you know, going through this period of infighting, which may or may not be necessary in some respect, but we're, we're, we're taking our eye off the ball. It's sort of the last days of Rome here, in my opinion, and I think um, we don't do something quickly. We'll be uh, we'll be second to China very soon here, diplomatically and internationally, and from a business and GDP standpoint too. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. But um, you know, I'm sure you and I could talk um, all day. But I do want to get you out to your other call uh, on time. So yeah, um, thank you for your time on this. And uh, I'm sure you and I will have other discussions. Uh, you know, not being recorded. Um, but yeah, let, let's let's connect sometime soon and and touch base on a few other things. But uh, there's still a lot of, I do want to ask you about personally, just beyond uh, podcast perspective. So for sure. Yeah, I appreciate the time, Rob. It was a pleasure speaking with you and happy to come back at any time. I, uh, I'm sure we'll stay in touch here. And uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, great. Uh, probably next time. Hopefully we can do it in person. So Indeed. all right, man, have a good rest of your day. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. I hope you all very much enjoyed this conversation between myself and Benjamin Smith. You can find him online at Benjamin Smith. He just made a new Twitter. I think it's at It's Me Benji. You can find me online at Rob Auchincloss or RobAuchincloss.com. Have a wonderful evening.